Um, it's great to see you here this afternoon. Uh, with the weather being like it is, I'm going to start in the obvious place, which is talking about Christmas trees. Um, as an adult, we've always had um, an artificial tree. I'm quite a fan of an artificial tree. It always looks the same. You get it out the loft, it's fine. Um, as, a, as a kid, we always had real ones. And I was just thinking um, the other day, I don't know whether it was like pine trees or the trees that you get for Christmas trees now are more resilient than they used to be. But certainly in the 1980s, all you had to do was breathe near one of those branches and every single little needle came off. And like me and my brother were doing more than breathing next to the branches. We were climbing under the tree, round the tree, when we were taking a break from playing football or rugby in the living room. So the, the, my mum and dad would always be complaining that the, um, there was uh, a carpet of needles uh, on the floor. Now, over time, what happens is the branches were becoming like barer and barer, and there's more and more needles dropping off. What doesn't happen to that tree is those needles don't start growing back. That is because the tree has been chopped down, it's been cut down, it's been taken out of the soil, and it's been brought inside. And although like, we've decorated it and made it look really good, it's headed towards death. It's been chopped off from the place where it gets its life. I've, I think my dad used to put a bit of water in the bottom. I, I'm not an expert on these sort of things, but all that's doing is maybe keeping a few needles hanging on uh, for a bit longer, but it's only heading in one direction, which is to be left in a sort of brown pile at the side of the road because you're not quite sure when the council's going to pick them up. Now, there are this... I'm going to focus on a few of the gardening-type metaphors or farming-type metaphors that are used in um, these chapters. And that's well out of my comfort zone. I don't like gardening at all. Um, but I think that what I've just said is right. If you chop something off, you take it away from its roots, you take it inside the house, it's not in the soil, it's not getting water, it's not getting the minerals up, it is going to die. Um, there's, no, there's no way around that. Um, a tree needs to be planted in soil. Any sort of plant, it needs to be planted there. It's going to draw up the minerals that it needs through its roots in that soil. It's going to draw up the water, and that's what it needs to grow. That's what it needs to produce fruit. That's what it needs to flourish, and that's what we're going to look at today. Um, it'd be helpful to have that passage that Matt read um, open in front of you. If you've closed it, it's page 907 in the, the Bibles that are out and about. Um, it's Hosea chapter 9. Um, and we'll read some of it again in a minute um, just to, to focus our attention on certain parts. Now, what it's important when you, you read um, Old Testament prophecy like this to remember that this was spoken to a particular group of people at a particular time. Um, and while it's got, I believe, it's got things that, we can, that God wants to say to us through it, those may not be exactly the same things that God was saying to those people at that particular time. Now, this was spoken to um, the nation of Israel. They were God's people. Their defining characteristic was that God had chosen them. They were the chosen people. They were his people. And it started by God choosing one man, Abraham, and these people who are receiving this message from uh, God via Hosea are all descendants of Abraham. That's like their identity. God chose this man and we're his descendants, we're his chosen people. That's the identity of these people. Now, God made a promise when he, he chose Abraham. He said he was going to make his descendants into a great nation, which is what they are now. They're, they're um, um, many, many people. 
he said that he would give them a land to live in. So he actually called Abraham to leave the place he was living. He said, look, your descendants are going to be a, a great nation. I'm going to give them somewhere to live. And that God was going to, that they were going to live in God's presence. That God would be with them. He would bless them so that they would be a blessing to other nations. And that's what God chose to do, that I'm going to choose this specific nation and I'm going to bless them so that the other nations around them see what God is like. That, that was the, the idea. So the, the very fact that there's, that there's a nation of Israel now receiving this message is the fruit of that promise to Abraham. Now, one of the images that um, is used throughout the Bible for God's people is this image of a vine. So it's apparently an expansive trailing plant slash tree that produces grapes. That's a vine, there you go. Um, I don't have a subscription to Gardeners World, so uh, that's as much you're going to get from me. Now, this idea of vines or vineyards, um, grapes, um, wine, common imagery uh, throughout the Bible. And the presence of a fruitful vine, you know, producing good grapes, good fruit, and wine, like abundant wine, is used to show God's blessing. It's used to symbolize joy and just the abundance of God's grace and his lavish uh, blessing on his people. Now, I'm not a wine drinker, but some of you may appreciate wine, so just imagine like a full-bodied aroma of blah, 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 like the sort of things that people say about wine. I, I, just imagine, like, what's the best-sounding, best-smelling, tasting wine you can imagine. That's what we're thinking about here. If we're thinking about Israel as a vine and we, it's producing this fruit. Now, I do love grapes. I don't, like, I don't drink a lot of wine, but I do, I do like grapes. One, they're delicious. Two, they sort of seem luxury. I don't know why, but when you see... We, I was saying this with the boys, and they were saying, why, like, when you see sort of images of pictures of like Roman emperors have always got people feeding them grapes why is it grapes and why are they always holding a full bunch like that and they seem luxury to me it might be that we it seemed like a treat when we got them when I was a kid and that's just um, still going also for those of you who know me I won't eat anything unless I've got a drink available and a grape like provides its own drink really I don't know that that's just a benefit to me um, so I, I'm well into this imagery of grapes a delicious fruit that provides its own drink um, the point is, when the vine is flourishing, or when Jesus is talking about a vineyard producing fruit, um, or when you're talking about uh, grapes growing, as we'll look at in a second, or when they're talking about wine, it's God's abundant blessing on his people. They're the vine, the people are the vine, and God is the gardener. He's tending to them, he's caring for them, he's nourishing them. So that they can grow and produce like the best grapes going, that produce the best wine going. This comes up in a number of places. Just, I'll just read you a couple of verses from Psalm 80. It said, you this is talking about God. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. So this is talking about the nation of Israel as a vine. And it's talking about when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt. So you drove out the other nations, you gave them a land, you planted it. goes on, you cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, and the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, it shoots as far as the river. So the idea of God as a, a gardener rescuing this vine from slavery in Egypt, clearing the ground for it, planting it, and nourishing it so that it flourishes and it's absolutely massive. 
You also get it coming up, this image of a vine with grapes, of like good and bad fruit, that when things are going well, when the people um, are following God, um, that's described as good fruit. And when the people are not, it's described as bad fruit. You get this a bit in Isaiah chapter 5 where it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. Similar sort of things we've just read in Psalm 80. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And then it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And so that's the um, image that we're going to focus on um, in this section of Hosea um, today. There's a few different things. As Amy said, this is, um, uses a lot of poetic um, imagery. We're going to focus on that aspect, the, the people as a vine, as a plant, that God is uh, the gardener. Just look at um, chapter 9, verse 10, with that in mind. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. That's where, de- that's where it's really beneficial that the grapes bring their own drink, isn't it, in the desert. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing that they loved. I think this, is a help- these, this verse is just a helpful summary of the sort of thing we've seen as we've read throughout the book of Hosea so far. And if you haven't been with us for those, that's absolutely fine because you get this summarized here now. Something's gone wrong. They've gone from this delicious, sort of surprising, refreshing grape in the desert to be described as like vile and rotten. And to illustrate what they've done, why that's happened, uh, God talks about when they came to Baal Peor. Now, this is talking about a historical event when their ancestors were coming out of Egypt um, they went to a place called Shittim, and what happened was the people started to worship a local god that was involved there. Moabite women um, invited them to come and worship this god. And it says in um, Numbers 25, the men began to indulge in sexual immoral- immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So the people of Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. So the Baal of Peor was some god that th- these people were worshipping. And the, the, the people of Israel are looking back at their ancestors that some of them started worshipping this other god. They ate the sacrifices. They did, they did all the worship. And that included sexual sin. Now the people who were hearing this from Hosea weren't personally there. And God's not saying, oh, they've gone back to that place and and done that thing with it. He's just saying what, what they are doing, what you are doing now, is exactly like what those people did there. It's idolatry and sinful actions. It's worshipping other gods and it's doing things that are wrong. It's spiritual and it's physical. The two are linked. You see this when you read, when Matt read the, the chapter and the bits that we'll read again. Uh, God repeatedly talks about their idolatry, that's worshipping other gods. Talks about his unfaithfulness, um, talks about like a calf idol and, and worshiping other gods like that. It also talks about um, their deeds. So it talks about um, making false oaths and, and things like that. 
it's spiritual that they're turning their back on God and turning towards other gods, so-called gods. And it's also that they are doing deeds that aren't right, that are wrong, that are sinful. They're disobeying God's commands. Ben said it helpfully either last week or the week before, that it's impossible to continue in a lifestyle of sin whilst also turning towards God because they're in the opposite directions. That's what's being described here. If, if I turn away from God, then I'm turning towards idols and sinful or destructive behavior. And that, that idolatry and that behavior, that's what the Bible calls sin, that has consequences. And so if you remember what I said the promises were to Abraham, we actually see all of those promises sort of being removed or reversed here. So um, God had promised to give Abraham and his descendants a place, but it mentions um, in verse 17, uh, there will be wanderers among the nations. Part of the promise was that God would be with them, they would live in his presence, but I didn't write down the verse reference for this. I'm just trying to look for it quickly. It's in verse 15. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. They're going to be out of God's house. They're going to be out of his presence. But I want to focus on the, the other part of the promise, which was about the, becoming a great nation, about being fruitful, about multiplying. And I want to focus on how God says that their unfaithfulness to him will mean that that part of the promise will be reversed. Now I'm going to read um, the verse 11 to the end of, of chapter 9. And you'll have picked it up when you, you, you were listening uh, when Matt read it earlier, that there's words in here and language and images that are really difficult to read and really difficult to hear and might be really upsetting depending on your personal circumstances or history. And I just want you to to stick with it, I'm going to address that uh, directly in, in a couple of minutes. But um, I believe that uh, God's got something good to say to us. He's got good news um, to us. But I just want us to be aware that that comes through some quite um, intense language. Verse 11, Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them of every one. Water them when I turn away from them. I've seen Ephraim, like Tyre, planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim will bring out their children to the slayer. Give them, Lord. What will you give them? Give them wounds that miscarry and breasts that are dry. Because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. Even if they bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. Think back to that Christmas tree um, example. When it's cut off from its source of life, it's headed towards death. The big picture of what we're being told here is turning away from God, turning away from the, the, the source, the author of all life, is turning towards death. We said trees bear fruit if they're connected to like roots that have, can take up water and minerals. Take the tree out of that situation and it's absolutely impossible for it to bear fruits. It's disconnected from the source of life. Like I said with the Christmas tree, it might look all right for now, but it's only going one way. It's the same thing when we turn away from God. If we turn away from God, we're turning away from the source of all life. It might seem all right at first, but 
it's impossible to bear fruit and it's only heading one way, which is towards death. Now, fruitfulness is linked with childbirth, specifically in those verses that I read. In the early parts of the Bible, uh, God's command to Adam and Eve is to be fruitful and multiply. And what that means is to have children. It's the same thing when I mentioned that God calls Abraham. At that time, he's an old man. And him and his wife, Sarah, haven't had children. They go on to have to wait a very long time. They're described as very old. She's described as barren. There's a big question. How can these two people become a great nation? It's impossible for them to have children. But God blesses them and they produce fruit. They do have a child. They do go on to become a great nation. Now, I think it can be difficult to get this link um, in our heads clearly because I think in the present day, certainly in the Western world, like sort of childbearing, having children is almost a lifestyle choice. And many people think, oh, maybe you should not have as many children because um, overpopulation might be a problem. That is a long way away from the mindset of the, um, the people of Israel at this time. Childbearing was a way of securing the family for the future and the same thing for the nation. The reason why they could become a great nation is through childbearing, through having children, from generation to generation, multiplying from one person to this, um, a family of 12 sons to a nation of millions of people. You see it in the way that the Bible talks about infertility. It's a massive problem and it's viewed as a curse, a so-called curse, because with infertility, the future of the family or the future of the tribe or the future of the nation is at risk. And that's what God's saying here, that the fruitfulness will be removed. God is the source of fruitfulness. And if you're cutting yourself off at the source, as these people are here, that's going to lead to pain and tragedy. Their nation's not going to be fruitful. They're not going to have children. They're not going to multiply and grow. And their nation will be heading towards extinction. Now, I really, really, really think it's important just to listen to what I'm about to say here, which is I don't want anybody to read this and apply to a personal circumstance. When it's talking about miscarriage, please don't apply that um, to a miscarriage, whether that's you that suffered with that or whether that's somebody that you know. This is 100% not saying that if you disobey God, you will have a miscarriage. It's not saying that you've had a miscarriage because you disobeyed God. That is not what this is saying at all. And I know that when uh, we read this language, because it's really intense um, and uh, the way that the poetry is written, I just want to be so clear about that. I would hate for anybody to go away with that idea. Miscarriages and the death of young children that's described in here, uh, tragedies, they exist in the world because sin exists in the world, but they're not applicable on a personal case-by-case basis that this sin leads to that result. Jesus says this um, in a, a place he talks about, he's uh, um, sort of addressing this issue that bad things happen if you've done a, uh, to you if you've done a bad thing. And he refers to a disaster at the time where a tower had fallen and killed some people. And Jesus says, oh, do you think that the people who it fell on were worse sinners than the others? And his point is, no, it isn't. At the time, it would have been common to think, well, yeah, it seems unlucky that this tower fell on those people. God must have been punishing them. And Jesus says, no, that, that isn't the case. He says, we're all sinful. We all need God's forgiveness. 
that tower didn't collapse on those people because they were worse than the people who escaped it. And that's the same here. If you've had a miscarriage, God was not punishing you. The punishment for your sin was taken by Jesus on the cross. And if that has happened to you, you've, I'm sorry that you've experienced the devastating effects of the world that we live in, which is broken by sin. But it's a world that will be one day recreated where that sort of thing doesn't happen. I said earlier that we've got to be aware of who these and how these prophecies are delivered um, and they're not necessarily directly applicable to us and that this is the sort of thing I mean. This is not God, this is not God giving a, a warning to somebody here today and it's not even God giving a warning to a specific woman in Israel at the time that if you do this, this is what's going to happen. It's a big picture, very intense warning to the people, to the nation as a whole, about the results of disconnecting themselves and turning away from the source of life and the source of all fruitfulness. It's shocking language. Like, we wouldn't use this language today as a warning to people. I don't really want to use the language this afternoon. But the shocking language is there to, to show the people that what they are doing in turning their back on God, turning away from the author of life, that that is shocking. It's like smelling salts to try and wake them up to the serious consequences of their idolatry and behavior. What God's saying, I think, is helpfully summed up if we turn over to um, chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground, for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. There's this principle here of reaping and sowing. The idea being that you reap what you sow. The start of verse 12, sow righteousness for yourselves and you reap the fruit of unfailing love. But then in verse 13, he says what they've actually done is they've planted wickedness, right? They've sowed wickedness and so they've reaped evil. It's a general principle that you see um, throughout the Bible that you reap what you sow. Now, we don't believe in karma. We believe in, in God's grace. But there's a natural principle in the world that you tend to reap what you sow. If I go around and I'm just aggressive with everybody and I'm shouting at people, what I'm likely to get back is people doing the same thing to me. You, you, you reap what you sow. It doesn't occur in every situation, but it's a general principle that we see in the world. And that's what God's saying here. Turn, turn away from God, turn towards sin. Turn away from life, turn towards death. Going back to the Christmas tree, it's like as if the Christmas tree chopped itself off and dragged it inside because it liked to have a look at the lights. It just seems ridiculous. Cutting the, they're cutting themselves off from the source of life and it can only have one outcome. Now, we don't live in the nation of Israel. God's people are now the church. So the church has, has taken the, the, the places, God's chosen people in the world that he uses to demonstrate um, his goodness, his blessing, his, his grace to other people. And so I think this acts as a, a warning to the church. If God's people, the church, turn away from God, who's a source of their vitality in their life, then they're not going to bear fruit. Just the same way that that was a threat to the future of the nation of Israel, if they're not having children, if they're not bearing fruit, then will the nation cease to exist? That's the same threat to the future of the church. No spiritual children 
no spiritual fruit, no people, no new people coming to know Jesus, the church would cease to exist in a generation. I don't want to be sat in a room with Ben and Scott in 20 to 30 years' time thinking, oh, we're getting a bit old for this, and if, when we stop doing it, like, will Grace Church cease to exist? We want new people. We want new leaders. It's not just to keep Grace Church going, because actually, I don't mind if Grace Church doesn't exist if there's something else in its place. We want God's kingdom to be grown. God's, God's church, his kingdom, is like a vine that, that can grow and extend, bearing fruit, bringing blessing to others. That's why we're interested in growth as a church. It's not because we want more people, just because we want more people. It's because it's this image of a flourishing vine bearing these brilliant grapes that produce brilliant wine. It's joy and blessing for everybody involved. We desire that fruit. We desire that growth. Not because we're trying to build an organization, but because it's like having children. It's, it's, everybody's rejoicing. The vine producing these grapes is great for everybody involved. And so we need to take this warning. Like, if we... If we Turning away from God, if we're disconnecting ourselves to the, uh, from the author of life, then we're only heading in one direction. We're not going to be bearing fruit as a church if we are facing in the opposite direction to God. So, therefore, better get working on your fruitfulness. I'll check in with you next week, see, see how you're getting on. That, that, that's not how it works. How can a vine try harder to, to bear grapes? Again, I said I'm not a gardening expert, but I'm pretty confident that that does, is not how it works. Jesus describes brilliantly how this works in John chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the, that's the, the answer there. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Jesus describes himself as the true vine, like the central vine, and we're all just branches coming off it. When the branch, if I'm a, there's a branch connected to that central vine, I've got everything that I need to bear fruit. If I'm disconnected from that vine, then I'm not going to bear fruit no matter how hard I try. If I'm connected to the vine, it supplies everything I need. So it's not a case of me going away thinking, right, I've, I've turned away from God, but I've just got to really try hard to bear fruit. That's impossible. The answer is to remain in him. And the translation says to abide in him to bear fruit. Make sure we're connected to the source. There's a glimpse of that in, back in Hosea, back in those verses that I just read, the second half of verse 12. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. It's like a, it's like a, a blast of light in a dark passage. Seek the Lord and he showers his righteousness on you. Think about the, the, the sort of um, vine and fruit imagery. From a dry, shriveled up vine with rancid grapes that needs water. And he's a shower coming. The dreadful shower of God's righteousness. 
We need that on us as individuals. We need it on us as Grace Church. We need it as a church worldwide. Jesus says it comes from remaining in him, abiding in him. The language here is that we seek him and he provides the fruitfulness. As a church, the fruitfulness is not going to come from like cracking the code and having the right methods and doing the right things. It comes from a people who are seeking the Lord, who are connected to him, who are remaining, abiding in Jesus. The methods aren't unimportant, but they're not the point. There's a good, a good book about um, how churches can work called The Trellis and the Vine. And I'll just explain to you the, the concept of it briefly now. Um, that they describe um, the trellis as the sort of uh, structures and activities, the different things that, that the church might do. Getting together on a Sunday, having a discussion group, having a life group, those are the different things that the church might do. They're there to help and support the growth of the vine. That's the people and their relationship with Jesus, their connection to Jesus as they grow and bear fruits. The trellis is important. It can really support and help the vine to grow. But often churches become so focused on the trellis that they forget about the vine. And they're maintaining this brilliant trellis and the vine's going in a different direction or the vine's shriveled up and gone. Everything we do as a church, we should be thinking about ourselves as that vine, connected to Jesus, drawing nourishment from him. Maintaining that connection, drawing that nourishment is the most important thing for ourselves, for fruitfulness in our own lives and for fruitfulness as a church. If you're a Christian today, we want to pray that we would remain, we would abide in Jesus and stay connected to that vine. If you're not a Christian, then Jesus talks about, goes on in that passage that I read, to talk about branches being grafted in. For you to become a Christian is not to be a branch disconnected, trying to copy what the branches over there are doing. It's to become connected to Jesus, the true vine. Now, Tim Keller, who's a, um, an American pastor and author, who's been extremely influential on many people in Grace Church, died a couple of days ago. So I just want to finish with a quote from him. Um, I read some words that he'd um, spoken about Jesus as the, the true vine uh, the other day. And he just said, to become a Christian means to come into the vine. To become a Christian means to come into the vine. Jesus is saying, I want to become your reason for doing everything. I want to be your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. The branch has no life except for the vine. And so as we, I'm going to pray for it and as we continue this afternoon, just, just think about that. The branch has no life except for the vine. When we're connected to the vine, we've got everything we need for a fruitful life. Let's pray.